We come now to our second scripture reading, which also takes us back to the text we were considering last Sunday evening, Matthew 2.15. So our reading is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, reading from verse 11. And when they, that is the wise men, had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now it is that particular statement, Out of Egypt I call my son, that prophecy that's Uh, found in Hosea chapter 11 and now repeated in Matthew 2.15 that we are continuing to look this evening. Last Sunday evening, we saw that uh, at the very least, in terms of the immediate situation, this is a word of God's protection of his son, God protecting his son by looking after him in a very unexpected location in the location of one of the ancient enemies of Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But also, I indicated that there are layers here of prophecy, of prophetic prediction, which all center upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And surely we should not miss that element because This is surely one of the great purposes of Matthew. In writing his gospel, he was particularly writing, it would seem, for Jews because there is an emphasis on the kingship of Jesus in this gospel, uh, not least in chapter 2 about Jesus as the king of the Jews. But there is also a strong emphasis in this gospel upon the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now that emphasis is there in all the Uh, New Testament, but it's particularly prominent in Matthew. And so we have reference after reference to Old Testament texts, uh, even in these first two chapters. Let me just briefly indicate to you where we find them. In Matthew chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, we have a reference to Isaiah chapter 7. All this, that is to do with Jesus being conceived of a virgin, all this was Uh, done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in chapter 2, as Herod and the wise men and the chiefs, priests and scribes get together over where the Christ was to be born, they cite that prophecy from Micah, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And then the one, the verse we're looking at tonight, but then just glance on to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, concerning the death of the male children in Bethlehem through Herod's brutal violence. Uh, this then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then if we were to continue into chapter 3, we would see John the Baptist's uh, work of heralding Christ is also cited. It's quoted from Isaiah by Matthew uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so quite clearly his concern is to show that Jesus and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. He's writing for people of a Jewish background. He's writing partly with that apologetic uh, aspect to his gospel. So we have to ask the question tonight, and what we're looking at is, what exactly is the more prophetic aspect of this phrase about? We see it's to do with protection for God's Son, but what is the prophetic element? Well, firstly, we can say it is a reminder of the people of God's past, because really the first explicit reference we have uh, that says such a thing as this is found in Exodus chapter 4. And verses 22 and 23, uh, when the Lord instructs Moses about facing Pharaoh and telling him that he's to let the people of God, the Israelite nation, go from slavery. And in these verses, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, the Lord says to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And here we have the first explicit acknowledgement or affirmation by God that Israel is his firstborn. Israel is his son. Uh, Although she may or he may be slaves in Egypt, Yet he is known and loved and owned by God. And the context of this statement is very significant for our Matthew quotes because it's the context of a confrontation between Jehovah, between Yahweh, and Pharaoh. And what we have in Matthew chapter 2 is a confrontation between Jehovah, Yahweh, and Herod. And it's a reminder to us that although Jesus himself, as he returned out of Egypt, he never had any sin. He was conceived in Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit, and he was sinless, uh, holy, harmless, and undefiled. Yet, in recapitulating, in bringing, as it were, a memory of Israel in Egypt, that first son, as it were, in Egypt, being called out of Egypt, it is a reminder that while Christ had no sin, his people, all his saved people, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we do have a past of sin. We do have a past of slavery, slavery to Satan, 
slavery to the dominion of sin, slavery and bondage to the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the mind. We have that terrible past. And yet because in sovereign grace and mercy, God has loved us with an everlasting love, we have been called out of our spiritual Egypt. We have been called into the wonderful kingdom of God's Son. We have been recognized, made sons and daughters of God. And so the Apostle John, in his first letter, can just reflect on the wonder of that. As he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Once we were slaves, once we were in bondage, once we were in spiritual Egypt. But now, if you're a Christian, now if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've repented of your sin, trusted in Christ, you have been delivered from that bondage. You've been made a free man, a free woman in Christ. So this prophecy, in the first instance, it recapitulates, it re-echoes the past of Israel. In the second instance, we can say it is a reminder of God's faithfulness to this affirmation. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness because Hosea, in taking up this promise in his prophecy, Hosea chapter 11, is clearly looking back on this statement in Exodus 4 that we've just examined. Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes who are about to be swallowed up by the Assyrians, and there's basically going to be a dissolution of the northern kingdom. Uh, It is far advanced in idolatry and rebellion and sin, and this is God's last word to the northern kingdom. But even as he gives his last word through Hosea, we find God, as it were, lamenting and and wringing his hands at the thought of Israel, at the thought of his people um, being given up. And so Hosea chapter 11, I won't go through the whole chapter, but I'll just remind you that in this chapter, God is looking back at this and, and lamenting this. And saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then he goes on to say, I taught Ephraim, which is a name for the northern kingdom. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. And then he goes on to say, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? And there's a prophecy that Ephraim will indeed be handed over to Assyria, and yet there will be those within Ephraim, an elect remnant, a small number, who will yet represent God's faithfulness to his covenant, to his people. In spite of Ephraim's sin, he's yet going to be kind to them, and they're not going to be utterly destroyed. And so it says in Hosea 11 verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger, I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So in terms of the ten tribes ethnically, in terms of the nation politically, there is going to be judgment. But in terms of God's faithfulness to those who are truly his people and truly belong to him, he is going to watch over them and keep them and bring them out of their 
out of that judgment. And just speaking historically, we find that fulfilled in the fact that when the Assyrians had come in like a wolf on the fold and had carted off the northern tribes, yet there were a few left in those areas, the ten northern tribe areas, and a few of them did continue to go up to Jerusalem and unite with God's people. And then I suppose later on we can say that the conversion of the Samaritans, uh, which is the, one of the um, nations that arose in that area, the conversion of the Samaritans, as it's recorded in John 4 and Acts 8, is also a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant. You see, God never breaks his promises. God never throws out his own people, those who truly are his people, not just politically, not just those who are his people by external uh, adherence, but those who are truly his people. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Out of Egypt I call my son. Statement in Exodus 4 that Israel is my son, my firstborn. God's determination yet to bring his people out of Egypt. Hosea chapter 11 out of their spiritual Egypt. And then the third layer as it were of prophecy. And clearly this brings us to the central point. It is a prediction of God's Messiah. It's a prediction of God's Christ. And we can see this in two ways. Firstly, my son here is a reference to Jesus himself. If you've got the New King James, which I'm preaching from tonight, you'll see that my son, uh, that phrase is capitalized. The uh, translators uh, rightly see a reference to Christ here. It's a reference to Israel, but it's also a reference to Christ who is the true Israel. Old Testament Israel, as we read in Isaiah, has become blind, deaf to God, unteachable. And yet here is one whose ear is opened morning by morning to hear the word of his father. One who's not blind, not deaf, not unteachable who hears a word behind him saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, when he turns to the right or the left. And he comes as perfect Israel. And even though he's perfect Israel, Jesus, that without sin, God's perfect servant, he identifies himself with Israel in the mass, Israel as a whole, the nation in its sinfulness. And this is why we find in the next chapter, chapter 3, we find Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan. John the Baptist protests about this. He says, you're the one who ought to be baptizing me. But Jesus says to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying is this, I, it is right, it is appropriate that I should be identified with Israel as a whole. Israel is sinful. And I am perfect, but I have come as perfect Israel to, be, to live out the life it should have lived out, 
to be obedient in a way that it has never been obedient, and then to make intercession for the transgressors. And just a point here, just as we continue that theme, that theme is continued in Matthew chapter 4, where we have Jesus as perfect Israel in the desert, doing what Israel had failed to do in her 40 years in the wilderness. She'd failed to uh, live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. She'd failed to worship the Lord her God only, uh, uh, and so on. But here you have perfect Israel taking to himself words from Deuteronomy and as the Son of Man resisting the devil and being obedient as perfect uh, as Israel should have been. And why did he do all this? Well, he did it for us. As that lovely hymn, uh, that lovely medieval hymn makes clear. For us, he was baptized. For us, he bore his holy fast and hungered sore. For us, temptation sharp he knew. For us, the tempter overthrew. He was representative Israel. Now, behold my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. That's what the Father says of him. And as that representative Israel, he was obedient unto death. And that obedience, you could say, began with his being in Egypt and being called out of Egypt uh, as God's son. It's a prediction of God's Messiah with the thought of Jesus as the true Israel. There's also a sense in which it's a prediction of God's Messiah, secondly, with the thought of Jesus as the great mediator. Because there's another echo here. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 20, we find the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream in Egypt. And he says to him, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And actually, this surely echoes uh, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 19, where the Lord appears to Moses in Midian, where he has become a refugee from Pharaoh for a while, for 40 years, in fact. And we read in Exodus 4.19 that the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Now, in this case, it's return to Egypt from Midian. But leaving aside the geographical location, there's this thought that now those who sought your life are dead, so return. And there's a similar statement here by the angel to Joseph. Those who sought the young child's life are dead, so return. And he does return to the land of Israel, although he ends up in Nazareth. And in this way, we are surely meant to see a parallel between Jesus and Moses. There is a sense in which Moses is even a type of Christ. He is the first mediator, the mediator of the first covenant, the old covenant, the first major covenant, that is. Uh, He's a, a type of Christ in that sense. He's a type of Christ in that from an early age he is persecuted, 
persecuted by Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh wanted all the male children in Egypt to be slaughtered, to be drowned. And he, here is Jesus with exactly the same situation around him as an infant, with Herod after him. And similarly, there is a miraculous or near-miraculous escape from this death, this persecution as a baby. In the case of Jesus, the angel warning the, the, the Holy Family to go down to Egypt. In the case of Moses, of course, hiding him in the basket, and then he's adopted into the very household of Pharaoh, a wonderful set of providences. And then finally, each of them to become a leader, a leader of God's people out of Egypt. In the case of Moses, it's out of political slavery, but in the case of Jesus, it is, of course, out of slavery to the devil. It's salvation itself. And then Moses leading his people through the wilderness, in the wilderness wandering of 40 years. And in the case of us who know Christ by his mercy, we're led through this wilderness world in the Christian life. Finally, Canaan, in the case of Moses and Joshua, finally heaven itself in the case of Christians, of God's people. This is not a comparison that is strange to the New Testament. The writer to the Hebrews has something to say about it. In Hebrews chapter 3, it's from a different angle. He's making different lessons. But he does point out in Hebrews 3 that Moses was faithful in all his house. That is, the house of the Old Testament people of God. But this one, Jesus who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And he contrasts Moses faithful in all his house, but as a servant, whereas Jesus, Christ, as a son over his house. And so quite clearly we're meant to see, whereas Moses was the mediator of that old covenant with its glories, but also its imperfections. Jesus Christ is now the mediator of a better covenant, the leader of his people to a better salvation and a better country. And Hebrews continues to make that kind of comparison as you read through chapters 8 and 12. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus, the true Israel, but also Jesus, the true leader of his people, Israel. And then finally, in this multi-layered prophecy, we can surely see in it an anticipation of great blessing. We shouldn't lose sight of the surprising nature of the prophecy. It was surprising in terms of protection, What a place to hide the baby Jesus. If the Gospels had been the mere invention of man, these writings, we can be pretty sure that he wouldn't have been hidden in Egypt. He might have been hidden in some obscure corner of Palestine, but not Egypt of all places. But Egypt it was. What a surprise. And what, of course, a humiliating thing for the devil himself 
to think in that very place where he had God's people in slavery once, that was the very place that now nurtured and watched over the baby, the young Jesus, as he was like an arrow in God's quiver, waiting to be loosed when he came into years. And so I believe there is yet another layer to this prophecy. And we need to just consider again what the Bible says about God's people coming out of Egypt or God's people in Egypt. Let me reference to you first Isaiah chapter 51 and verses 9 to 11. Now this is a prophecy given through Isaiah to God's people who are about to go into deportation into Babylon. Isaiah 51 and verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Now that's a reference back to God defeating Egypt and overthrowing Pharaoh and his army. Rahab is another name for Egypt. The serpent is a symbol there used for Egypt. So God is encouraging the people who are about to go into deportation that he's going to bring about another exodus, a second exodus. Awake as in the ancient days. He's going to, in other words, restore the people. And then it goes on. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? That's remembering the crossing of the Red Sea. So, in like manner, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And we can add to that a similar prophecy found in Jeremiah chapter 31, which we read earlier in this service. Jeremiah 31. And again, this is a reference to the return from Babylon. Verse 7. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And here is the answer of God. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, that's Babylon, and gather them from the ends of the earth, that's beyond Babylon, of course. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim, notice that, Ephraim, the, the northern kingdom which had disappeared 200 years ago, is my firstborn. What is happening here is that there is a prediction of a return from Babylon, but there's a prediction of a greater return. Babylon was a place of slavery and servitude, perhaps not as harsh in some respects as Egypt, but it was a place of great sorrow for the people of God, where they hung up their harps on the willows and wept. And it's a place, a symbol too, and this is the point, it's a symbol too of the return of the sinner from sin and from alienation and coming back to God and coming with repentance and with supplication. This is why you get these strikingly universal terms 
In even this prediction, gather them from the ends of the earth. I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim historically does not exist at this point in Jeremiah. But it is a prophecy of a greater return from a spiritual Egypt. And now let's go to our final uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 19. And I hope you'll see that I haven't been reading more into these texts than I should uh, by this particular quotation. Isaiah chapter 19. I'll read from verse 18, actually. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. That's where John Bunyan, of course, got that phrase, the city of destruction in his Pilgrim's Progress. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one. And he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt. And Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He's saying the Egyptians themselves shall become the sons of God. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, there are some people that foolishly take that prophecy in verse 23 and talk about motorways being built between Egypt and the Middle East. That's, uh, that's totally wrong. This is a prediction concerning gospel days. This is a prediction concerning God's people now being enlarged to include the Gentile nations and even those nations that have historically been Israel's ancient enemies, Egypt and Assyria. So you find that within these three ancient enemies, Egypt, Assyria, uh, and, I lost it now, Egypt and Assyria, so just two of the ancient enemies. Within those enemies, there's complete unity between them and Israel. Each is just one of three. There's no now um, uh, priority of Israel over Egypt or Israel over the Assyrians. Israel's just one of the three. The middle wall of partition has been broken down between God's ancient people and the Gentiles. When they come into Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And the highway spoken of is just simply a reference to the exodus, to that pathway from slavery into freedom. 
And the whole thing is couched in terms of covenant. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. And God says, blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. They are really just covenant terms to say, these are each my children, my son, mine inheritance. Tremendous prediction concerning not only Christ the Messiah coming out of Egypt as perfect Israel and as a better mediator, but also his people being led by him uh, through the, the, the centuries, being led by him in the gospel, out of slavery, into the promised land. Tremendous prediction. And it began with Pentecost, and it will continue until Christ returns. If you believe Jonathan Edwards, as he spells it out in his humble attempt, and that's just a short phrase for a long document in which he persuades people to extraordinary prayer. If you uh, follow his line, he says, we haven't yet seen the full extent of the fulfillment of this prophecy, but we will see it before Christ returns. I leave that thought with you. But the thought I want to just particularly emphasize is this. As it was with the head, Jesus himself, so it will be with the body. The head came out of Egypt. Egypt, uh, is, uh, this is my son, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so it will be with the body, with those who are called by the gospel. And really, what is the point I want to apply? What is the application here? What is this? Obviously, what we've looked at is complicated. There are different layers of fulfillments. But I put it to you that such a study as what we've had tonight emphasizes to us the completely harmonious and wonderful nature of God's word, the Holy Scriptures. It, it so agrees, it so intermeshes. It's a wonderful book. It's, it has harmonies within it that no mere man could have brought about. Written over centuries itself, and yet all harmonizing and all teaching the glory of Christ and the wonders of his kingdom. And the question surely is this, do you love the scriptures? Do you and I wonder at it, rejoice at it, relish it, delight in its insights, believe it, obey it, seek for Jesus Christ in it, and walk in the light of what it reveals to us? We thank God for his blessed and wonderful book. And if you've never started reading it, start. Read a few verses at least each day and pray to the Holy Spirit to give you understanding before you read it, and then do what it says.